You know, the reason I became an analyst, I was ordained as a minister, and it wasn't that I lost my faith um, or, you know, uh, went sour on the Christian uh, ministry. It was because I felt Jungian psychology went deeper into the source of uh, people's needs and problems. And as an analyst, I could go there with them. Welcome to Psychology and the Cross. This podcast explores the link between Jungian psychology and Christian thought, faith, and tradition. In a series of conversations with Jungian analysts and scholars, we will investigate where the two depart and converge. This journey will lead us back to C.G. Jung himself, the son of a Protestant Christian pastor and whose many of his later works were dedicated to if not a reformation, a retranslation of Christian thinking as lived experience and faith, and which we will learn in this podcast, walked around with the Bible in his pocket. My name is Jakob Plesensky. I'm a union psychoanalyst with a private practice in Berlin. In this our first episode, I had a great pleasure to speak to union analyst Dr. Murray Stein. For most unions, Murray needs no introduction, but for the rest of you, Murray Stein has written a numerous books on union psychology, In Midlife, Practicing Wholeness, Map of the Soul, and many more. The first volume of his collected works was recently released on Chiron Publications. Murray is probably the analyst who delved deepest into researching the link between Jung's psychology and Christianity. His 1985 book, Jung's treatment of Christianity is a classic that still stands today. To me personally, Murray is one of the great storytellers of the Union School. During my own training at ISAP in Zurich, Switzerland, I attended many of his lectures. Besides his deep knowledge of analytical psychology and Jung's life and psychological theory, he always left us with great stories. Stories of Jungian psychology, stories from Jung's own life, stories that stayed in our student bodies and which we now often also share with others. Also in this podcast, Murray will continue to share some of his captivating stories. But this time I wanted to take the opportunity to ask Murray about his own story. How did he get in contact with Jung? What's his own experience of Christian faith? Where did it all begin? Well, I was born into a Christian family. My father was a Baptist preacher. Um, and so I grew up in a parsonage, uh, very much in the church. We attended church three times a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday evening. Um, and I memorized a lot of Bible verses and um, really became, the Bible was my geography more than where we lived because we moved around quite a bit to different places as my father went up the ladder in the ministry. Um, and so I became very familiar with the Bible. When I visited Israel some years ago, I felt very at home there because of the names. It's a kind of familiar territory because I grew up in, in with Bethlehem and Jerusalem and Jericho and all those places, um, Egypt, uh, the Promised Land. So the Bible uh, was very familiar. And when I went to um, college, of course, I was exposed to the secular world, more not for the first time. Also in high school, my uh, 
uh, and very good teachers. And um, um, we we studied uh, Greek tragedies, and we studied world history and philosophy. And but in college, um, uh, of course, it opens the mind to uh, the big world of um, the great thinkers and. Uh, and so one's perspective changes, and I guess I became oriented more to that uh, world of the uh, Western uh, modern uh, thinking, and I still maintained a connection to the church. Uh, attended regularly Sunday services at Yale University, where we had a great pe preacher, William Sloan Coffin, who was all about social action, and this was the 60s with civil rights and the anti-war movement, and it was a very exciting time to be involved in all of that. <clears throat> and then I went to Yale Divinity School uh, following my studies uh, at the undergraduate level there. And um, it was at the Divinity School that I learned about Jung, actually. Jung had not been mentioned at all in my um, college studies. Um, but at the Divinity School, there was a professor named uh, Becker, um, and he was in charge of pastoral theology. And there was also a psychology and religion professor there who taught some Jung. And uh, so for the first time, I became exposed to Jung's ideas a bit. And then I took a year off the sabbatical year and went to Washington, D.C., and I worked in the War on Poverty program and attended a church there called the, um, uh, the Church of, uh, what was the name of that? The Church of the, uh, I can't remember the exact title of that church, but there was a person there uh, on the staff named Elizabeth O'Connor and she had written a book called Journey Inward, Journey Outward. And she used Jung's ideas a lot in connection with her Christian commitments and so on. Um, and um, she suggested one day that I read Memories, Dreams, Reflections just out of interest. And um, there was a, uh, a group of people, a small group in that church that were exploring um, the question, where am I? Where am I in life? Uh, it was a kind of quasi-therapy group, but uh, more exploration. And that combination, and then reading Memories, Dreams, Reflections, really <clears throat> interested me in Jung and dreams, and what dreams have to offer us in the way of insight and also spiritual values. Um, and so really it was in this Christian context that I became exposed to Jung at the Divinity School. Then when I went back, Russell Becker was his name. He had just spent a year in Zurich at the Jung Institute. And he came back all fired up about Jungian psychology. And I went into uh, therapy with him. We met twice a week. We worked on my dreams. And I took a job at the local uh, mental health center and worked with psychiatric patients during that year. So I was exposed to mental health. And then I read a book and reviewed it for <clears throat> the um, Divinity School Journal <clears throat> called In Search by James Hillman. 
And it was James Hillman's contribution to psychology and religion. Very wonderful book. It's my favorite of all his writings. <clears throat> and um, uh, then I wrote him a letter and asked if it would be possible for me to come and study at the Young Institute. And I was accepted. I went to Zurich and studied. So that's how this all came into being. And it was a kind of synchronistic process because one thing just led to another and doors opened and uh, I was able to study then at the Young Institute uh, in Zurich for four years from 1969, 1973. I then came back to the United States, began practicing as an analyst and ended up in Chicago where I took a doctorate at the University of Chicago in a department called <clears throat> Religion and Psychological Studies under Peter Homan's direction. And Peter Homan's wrote a book called Jung in Context. Uh, he was interested in Jung. He wasn't a Jungian, but he was interested in how Jung's psychology fit into the picture of modernity uh, and how psychology, in a sense, replaces uh, religion uh, for some people in modernity. So Jung in Context puts Jung's work within the context of modernity of the 19th and 20th century and sees psychology in connection to the decline of religion. As religion declines in the West, psychology and psychoanalysis takes off and increases and becomes attractive to people and uh, their spiritual needs are fulfilled in analysis rather than in um, religious activities. Uh, so that was my experience. <clears throat> I loved Jung. Uh, I could identify with Jung. He was also the son of a pastor and grew up in a parsonage and had to struggle with his father um, and his father's problems. With My father didn't have problems with religion. He was a passionate uh, pastor, minister. He really taught and believed in the gospel. So did my mother. Uh, so um, I didn't have the same problems that Jung had with his father. Um, and um, I had quite a positive relationship to my father, but I felt I outgrew him in a way because he was very um, contained within that uh, evangelical Christian framework. And um, I uh, stepped into the modern world and the secular world. And that was, he, he, he did not um, discourage me from going there, but I don't think he really understand understood what I was doing. And so I had to separate a bit. But I took with with me a lot of the things that I had been uh, taught as a child, and particularly appreciation of the Bible. I still like to read the Bible, and I've written a book about the Bible, um, the Bible as dream, which is an interpretation of the biblical story as an individuation process of the Jewish people. and. Um, uh, so I can apply the uh, psychological ideas of Jung to my reading of the Bible nowadays. I would like to delve into to your book that you wrote in, in 1985, Jung's Treatment of Christianity. And I know in the acknowledgement of this book, 
you're thanking your wife for, for, for faithfully accompanying you on uh, the long march to securing a very old dream. So could you say something about how that came about and, and a little bit about the book, the uh, lovely book? Sure, yeah. Well, the very old dream, I guess, was to somehow try to um, bring psychology and Christianity together under, you know, in, in, under two covers. Um, the first book of Jung's that I was exposed to was Psychology and Religion, and that was by accident. I was going through the shelves of a public library in Detroit when I was in high school, and I saw a book that interested me called Psychology and Religion. Those were Jung's Terry lectures that he gave in 1936 at Yale. And I took it home and tried to read it. Um, I had read already Freud's interpretation of dreams, and I thought, wow, this, this would be interesting, psychology and religion. Um, but I couldn't understand any of it. It was way over my head. <laughs> and it took me years to understand and appreciate it. Now I think it's a marvelous work. Um, and then um, the book that I wrote, Jung's Treatment of Christianity, came about as a result of my studies at the University of Chicago, I had to write a dissertation for my doctorate. And uh, Peter Homans was willing to accompany me on that. He really let me do what I wanted to do. And I thought I would look into Jung's writings on Christianity and ask the question, what was he doing? Why was Jung writing so much about Christianity, especially after 1938? It was a turning point when he went to India. He had a dream in which he was searching for the Holy Grail and um, he needed to recover the Holy Grail and he felt that he had a mission to somehow engage uh, modern Europe uh, in an encounter with, uh, with psychology and to offer it uh, something of uh, value from the point of view of psychology. And so he began writing about Christian uh, themes. Um, in 1940, I think it was um, Transformation Symbolism and the Mass, 1941, the, um, his essay on the, on the Trinity, um, and then onwards, Answer to Job in 1952, and Ion, he speaks quite a lot about Christianity and interprets the Bible. Um, so, he really gets much more engaged in Christian themes, discussing Christian themes in the second half of his life after 1940 onwards to the end of his life. So his late works are very occupied with Christian materials. And I wanted to know what's he trying to do? Why is he writing about this? And what is his approach? So I came up with the idea that he's applying his therapeutic method to Christianity. Uh, he's taking Christianity as a patient. He looks at Christianity as a patient who um, has um, uh, suffered from the problem of one-sidedness, has, has split the anima and the animus, the masculine and feminine, good and evil, and identified with one side and rejected the other. And it would be his task then as a therapist of Christianity to offer this analysis and perhaps some suggestions for how to achieve a better balance, um, a better integration of the opposites. Because Jung felt that especially 
toward the end of the New Testament in the book of Revelation, there is a radical um, split between good and evil. Um, and uh, this is not so much in the Gospels, although there is the Christ-Antichrist problem, uh, but especially in um, the, gospel, in the um, book of Revelation, and then in the Christian tradition as the spiritual denies the body and uh, the good over uh, love overcomes um, hate and, and um, destruction. And if you look at Dante's uh, Commedia, for instance, you know, you have the three levels, you have the inferno where the souls are condemned for eternity, that's the realm of Satan, they will never uh, be um, redeemed or restored, they will never reach paradise, then you have the section of the uh, purgatorio where the, the souls are going through a cleansing process and gradually moving upward toward paradise, and then in paradise you have the saints and the Godhead, and Dante makes his way through all these levels and finally has his great vision at the end. So, but that lower level is never um, connected uh, or um, uh, brought into a kind of relationship, uh, split off uh, from the higher levels. And that's the medieval worldview, and that's what Christianity had developed. So um, was there a way of um, offering Christianity a road toward wholeness? Um, the individuation process aims toward wholeness and uh, uniting the opposites, not destroying the opposites or one side of the opposites, but holding the opposites in attention um, uh, within the mandala of wholeness. Um, and so to uh, in my last chapter in the book, I speculated on how Christianity might do this concretely um, in terms of um, recognizing the feminine in the church and in the history of Christianity and, and uh, also doing something with the problem of evil. That was a big one for Jung, the problem of evil and uh, what to do with how we think about evil and how we relate to evil. It wasn't that he denied the existence of evil at all. He felt it was a very powerful force, but how to be with it and how to deal with it and how to bring it in relation to the good, that's the problem. So uh, uh, I tried to suggest a few pathways that this might be done within the within Christian theology and practice. And I think there's been some movement in that direction in the last um, decades, I, as I look at it anyway. You, yeah, you, it, yeah, I counted it 36 years ago since, since your book was published. And yeah, I, I was wondering about how you look at the treatment and, and Jung's treatment. And, and if you look at it, uh, if your view has changed somewhat or if you're sort of, if it still stands, uh, that, that is. I mean, what Jung was doing hasn't changed. Um, uh, I don't know if my, I think um, as I look at, uh, and, and my view is very limited of what's going on in Christianity. And it, to me today, it looks very divided between right wing and left wing <laughs> um, forces, especially in the United States with a strong evangelical support of, of people like Donald Trump 
you know, on right-wing uh, racists. This I don't understand how Christians can support something like that, but they do. And then on the other side, you have the mainstream, uh, mainstream Protestant churches and, and most of the Catholic Church, I think, that supports um, basically what Pope Francis <laughs> is talking about, helping the poor, trying to uh, uh, decrease the, the, the huge gap between the rich and the poor that exists in the world today, as well as integrating the races and bringing the feminine uh, much more into uh, into the foreground. I think the Catholic Church has done a lot with that on a symbolic level, elevating the feminine into the, uh, as Jung said, uh, um, into the Godhead. I don't think they quite did that, but they did bring the Virgin forward into a much more dominant position and the devotion to the feminine and the virgin i think has increased under these recent popes mm -hmm. and in the protestant church um, um there are a lot of um, uh, women clergy now that, that was never seen before when i was a student at yale divinity school i think we had three or four female students in my class of, I think there were 100 students or 150 students at the time, three or four were women going for the, uh, the master's in divinity degree. So that was the basic degree that would allow you to serve as a minister in the Protestant churches. Nowadays, it's uh, divided 50-50, 50% of the class is female. Same thing happened in medical school, by the way. Medical schools are now 50-50 between men and women. So women have entered the professions as a result of feminism, largely, I think, very strongly, and including in the uh, Protestant churches, and to some degree are being elevated also in the Catholic Church into positions of more authority and, um, and uh, better, you know, higher, higher degrees of uh, um, participation. In the in the book uh, Jung's treatment of, of Christianity, uh, you also say something. I will quote it, and I thought it's very interesting. You say what what Jung foresaw as the future evolution of the Christian tradition could perhaps most accurately be thought of as the child of Christianity and the grandchild of Judaism. It would be uh, this generation of the great Judeo-Christian religious tradition. Jung would have hoped that the new religion would represent. I have suggested a therapeutic transformation of Christianity, partially Christianity's child and partially quite different from it, its own unique religious tradition. Well, um, I think I, would, I had in mind uh, uh, certain movements within Christianity that were a departure and yet not, uh, uh, that maybe went in the direction of New Age, um, spirituality that combined Buddhist practices, for instance, meditation practices um, with um, uh, Christian piety, and that this evolution toward a kind of world uh, religion would come out of Christianity, combine elements of Christianity with other religious traditions and form something new. And that isn't a unique idea to me at all. Um, 
there's a famous uh, letter that Jung wrote to one of his followers who sent him a dream. And in that, Jung speculated that a new religion would form in about 600 years. Um, and he said, in the meantime, individuals are creating their own um, spiritual systems or their own belief systems out of their inner work and their dreams and their active imagination. But eventually, this will come into a, um, a world, a new world religion. So I think that was in the back of my mind that for Christians, uh, this new religion that combined analytic work, inner work, uh, where you work with your dreams and active imagination, and then also relate that to your own traditional background, this combination would eventually produce a, um, a new form that would be like the grandchild of Judaism and the child of Christianity. I look on Christianity as the child of Judaism, comes out of the Jewish tradition, all the Jesus and the apostles were all uh, born as Jews and then assumed this new religious attitude and formed a, uh, a child and then there would be a grandchild uh, in this uh, next stage. Uh, some years ago when I was going deeply into Luther, I, I contacted you for some uh, um, with some questions and you shared with me this beautiful paper that you wrote that I didn't know of, Jungian Psychology and the Spirit of Protestantism. Um, and and, and, and could, could you share a little bit about in what way you see that Jungian psychology is working within this spirit, you say, of, of Protestantism? And, and maybe we could also touch a bit about Jung's uh, rendering of this Christian concept of uh, the imitation of Christ, which I find very, very interesting how you explore that and how you, yeah, out Jung's uh, interpretation of that. Well, I start with the, um, you know, with the fact that Jung grew up in a, in a very Christian context. His father was a, a Christian pastor. He had six uncles who were Christian ministers. His grandfather was a very well-known leader of um, Protestantism in Basel and the head of the Basel Cathedral. So Jung was steeped in the Christian uh, tradition. Um, and, and he absorbed that background. There's no way you couldn't absorb that background. Uh, so when he said about doing his psychological thinking, it's inevitable that some of those constructs would play, would play a part. Now, one feature of Jung's psychology is that it's very individual. Uh, and that is the Protestant attitude uh, about the relationship between the individual and God. You have a direct relationship to God. You don't have to go through a priest. You don't have to go through a community. You and God have a conversation. You pray to God. God sees you as an individual. And so this um, kind of um, individualism within uh, the church uh, context um, um, is very much a feature of Protestantism. When Jung gets around to doing his analysis and psychoanalysis, he emphasizes over and over again, the individual is responsible. Individual consciousness is a higher form of consciousness than collective consciousness. You go into any collective, be it into a mob scene, 
or into a church or into a meditation center, the level of consciousness is reduced. The individual's consciousness is the highest form of consciousness. Now, this value placed on the individual and the individual's struggle with the unconscious or the self or with life, questions of life and death, uh, is very central to Jung's uh, idea of individuation. And then he also brings in the idea of destiny. You know, that um, we're sort of born with a destiny. Uh, Jung was very interested in astrology, by the way. Liz Green has written a couple of books recently on that subject. Um, and uh, astrology, of course, speaks about the destiny of the individual is shaped by synchronistically or causally, some people believe, by the stars and the moment of birth and so on. Jung didn't believe that, but he, he did read the astrological chart as a symbolic system that states something important about the way the archetypes are arranged in an individual's psyche. And he believed that uh, we're born with a destiny. We have a future uh, program uh, written into our code. Uh, Hillman wrote a, a book about this called The Soul's Code. Um, and that you live that destiny in the course of your life, one way or another, <clears throat> either well or poorly. Um, and so that the individuation process is guided by something beyond the ego's choice and control, that you are destined to be a Jungian analyst, let's say, or a psychologist. I mean, it could be that particular, or it could just be you're destined to be a thinker or a feeler, you're destined to be a social person or an introvert, so there's a sense of, of destiny. And then uh, that's very much in, in the, um, especially in Calvinism, you know, that you are predestined um, to be uh, one of the chosen or not. So the idea of predestination, I think, is also in the back of, of Jung's mind when he speaks about the destiny of the individual and the, the guidance of the individuation process from another source. Uh, a, a quasi-divine source, you know, the self that is guiding the individuation process. And then he has the idea of synchronicity, which is very close to uh, what I grew up with as um, answers to prayer or, you know, divine intervention or grace. Uh, you're going down a, a certain path and suddenly something happens by accident that's very meaningful and your direction changes. Um, and that turns out to be your future. You know, it's how you meet your wife. Most of our big um, turning points in life come about through synchronistic moments, uh, meaningful coincidences. It's how we meet our partners. It's how we choose our careers often. When Jung's book fell into my hands at the suggestion of Elizabeth O'Connor, it changed my life. When I read Memories, Dreams, Reflections, I thought, wow, this is a whole new world I want to I want to look into, and it led me to Zurich eventually. So um, this idea of synchronicity as a divine hand, sort of guiding your path, um, is certainly very strong in, in the Protestant uh, uh, ideology, and it's also something that Jung developed in his thinking. So this combination of features. Um, value of the individual, individual consciousness, individual work, the opus that we all have to do, 
and also the absence of the sense of the importance of community, really. Jung was suspicious of collectives. Uh, and I think you ask another question, we can come back to this. Uh, this is a, a feature of Jungian, uh, the Jungian world, I think that is weak, uh, the sense of community. Um, Jung tried it a, a bit in founding the psychological club. His patients would come together and meet with each other and listen to lectures and interact with each other. I think it was an attempt to form a, a community of people who are doing this individual work. But uh, I don't think it was a big success. I think there is such an emphasis on the individual work rather than the relational aspect uh, among the members that there were a lot of conflicts in the club for, at one point, Jung actually left it because he was criticized heavily. Uh, and then they invited him to come back and he, he really was a dominant figure in it. So it was what the club became was <clears throat> Jung and his followers. Uh, whether that was in any sense a community, I have my doubts. I mean, the people knew each other, but I don't think they sensed much of a connection with each other. And I think you studied at, uh, at the Young Institute and at ISAP. That's also true, I think, in the student body. There is a, a way in which the students are connected, but in many senses, they're not. Uh, they are working on themselves and their analysis and then their studies. And they're more like individual units coming together occasionally for something, but then going their own separate ways. Um, and. Uh, in a sense, that is Protestantism. You know, Protestantism fragmented into a hundred pieces. There are so many different groups. There are the Lutherans, there are the Calvinists, uh, and the Presbyterians, and the Southern Baptists, and the <laughs> whatnot. Looking the other way around, uh, in your mind, is there something that Christianity, you know, or what could Christianity offer analytical psychology? Well, Christianity, um, uh, you know John Hill, don't you? Uh, he grew up a Catholic in Ireland, which is very Catholic. Uh, and he um, attended school in a monastery. <clears throat> and in that monastery, the students were um, encouraged to, be, uh, to become religious, you know, become uh, go into the priesthood. And he had to make a choice. And he told me, uh, I don't think he minds my saying this, he chose that he couldn't submerse his individuality in the collective so much. So he chose to leave and follow his own career and he became a Jungian analyst. But he looks back on that community now as something that is really very valuable and that he misses, okay? So do we have to choose between submerging our individuality in community in order to have community really strong community. Uh, do we have to choose between that and being an individual or is there some way to combine them? Be an individual and individuate as, as we suggest in Jungian work and having a uh, sense of connection to um, others 
either in the same field or just uh, uh, in a community, participating in a community. I know a lot of Jungians miss community and they complain about there not being community. Um, I've been in the Jungian world now for 50 years and I've heard this complaint over and over again um, that what analysts miss is a sense of being in a community. They, they work in a solitary way in an office by themselves with individuals. At the end of the day, they're very tired. They go home. Uh, they have a family and that's their life. Um, they don't participate much in community activities. Um, I think what the church, uh, what the Christian uh, church or faith has to offer is the idea of an invisible community. Uh, and Jung liked that idea, the invisible church, he called it sometimes. Um, that is, it is a, a sense of being in community with others, not necessarily in an explicit organizational sense, where you get together regularly for rituals and, and various things, but um, that you have a sense of um, unity or oneness with, uh, with others who are working along the same lines or who are um, at the same level of consciousness or working on themselves in the same way. One thing Jungians uh, have, but probably needs to be strengthened, is faith. Uh, we place our faith in the self, you know, in the psyche, in this sense that when we sit down with a patient uh, and we uh, conduct analysis, we, um, we believe that the answers to the patient's questions uh, will emerge out of the dialogue, out of their uh, inner world, out of their dreams. That's an act of faith. Uh, and I think that needs to be um, uh, very solidly stressed in, uh, in the training programs that um, the analyst doesn't have the answers. What you have is faith that the answers will come. Otherwise you couldn't conduct analysis. You know you don't have the answers, but you have faith that they will emerge out of a process and out of the psyche. So I think uh, what, um, what Christians have and really uh, prize above all else is their faith in an invisible power, uh, an invisible source of, um, of uh, inspiration, of uh, grace, of um, comfort, uh, many things um, that, it, that will always be present to them. And I think Jungians can learn from that or can, can, can um, strengthen their um, conviction that, that faith is a worthwhile thing to have. We aren't, um, uh, we aren't um, committed to a um, postmodern uh, deconstructionist skepticism or nihilism as Jungians. I think we're committed to a faith in process and in invisible presence and power that you can name the self or you can name the divine, you can name the archetypal. Thank you.
Well, I'm also thinking as you speak about sort of coming back to the uh, to the idea of individuation and uh, and the imitatio Christi, you know, that you write about in your paper on Protestantism and and, and Jung's understanding or rendering of the imitatio Christi, because I think it, uh, Christ has something to do with this, no? Maybe yes. at least the question of community and how me becoming who I am, what that has to do with you and your process, yeah? But I just wanted to read something because Jung says, uh, um, I have a quote here to share with you before I leave over to you. He says, the imitatio Christi has this disadvantage. In the long run, we worship as a divine example, a man who embodied the deepest meaning of life. And then out of sheer imitation, we forget to realize our own highest meaning. The imitation of Christ might, might well be understood in a deeper sense, namely as the duty to realize one's best conviction, which is always also a complete expression of the individual impairment with the same courage and the same self-sacrifice as Jesus did. Yeah, that's the way he took it, that uh, Jesus had his vocational calling when he was baptized by John and went into the wilderness, and he discovered his vocational future, um, and he made his experiment, and he lived it to the end with, with um, good faith. Uh, um, and that would be um, the pattern. Live your experiment, live your destiny, live your vocation to the best of your ability, no matter what it costs. Um, and, um, you know, we talk about myths to live by, Jung said that he, at the beginning of the Red Book, you know, uh, he says he, he uh, in Memories, Dreams, Reflections, he says he didn't know what his myth was. So he wanted, needed to discover his myth. So he went on this journey, and we have the Red Book to show how he pursued that. And um, he found these interesting figures in his inner world, and Philemon and so on. And, um, and he said that became the prima materia for his personal myth, out of which he then wrote his other books and lived his life and built Bollingen and all of that. So um, I think that he was following that, that sense of imitatio Christi, find your vocation, find your calling, find the self and the path and live that. And that is imitatio Christi and his sense, doing what Christ did, not following Christ's path, but your path, but the way Christ followed, Jesus followed his destiny to, to its conclusion. And what happened to Christ then? Or I'm, I'm just wondering what, what happens to these values symbolized or by Christ as, as a figure, uh, as, 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 as we're interpreting it in the way that Jung, Jung, Jung did. Well, you know, I think what happens if you go deeply into yourself, you find um, you find values and images uh, that aren't so different from um, what Jesus found. <laughs> in other words, the idea would be that Jesus was living an archetypal pattern and living it out, and we will find an archetypal pattern that won't be so different from his, but we're not imitating him. You know, if you imitate anybody else, you kind of look at what they're doing and then you uh, you imitate it. So you try to become like them. You don't try to become like yourself, you try to become like them. And this alienates you from yourself. 
um, you get cut off from yourself. You cut off large pieces of yourself as a result of that because you aren't them. Um, you do gain something from it. I mean, the people who practiced Imitatio Christi would would experience, you know, the the, the marks, um, you know, the the signs of of Jesus on them. Some of them, you know. Uh, lacerate themselves, they carry the cross, they do all these things. Well, what do they gain from that? Probably some sense of identification with Jesus and his suffering. Uh, but it really separates them from their own concrete lives, from their own history, from their childhood, from their parents, from their family, because they aren't that person. Um, so they end up living a kind of fantasy life, you know, a life of uh, imagining that they are somebody like um, this man who lived 2,000 years ago in a very different culture and a very different time. Um, so that's the problem with that kind of literalization of imitatio Christi. I don't think Jung meant to say that it's not good to, to pay attention to the great values that Jesus talked about, you know, his teachings. Those are all... Um, very um, positive values and, and very high um, level of consciousness and, and what Jung called um, in Mysterium Pinionsianus the um, unio mentalis. Uh, unio mentalis is separating the soul from the body and connecting it to the spirit so that you have um, control over your instincts and you you're able to think about them and reflect on them and uh, live them in a conscious way um, um, and um, uh, have a sense of um, uh, others as well as yourself, a sense of spiritual values. All of that is a very positive development in a person's life. Uh, so Jung isn't against that. It's against uh, the idea of alienating yourself from your own concrete life and history and trying to become something else. He had similar objections to people trying to become Buddhists, uh, you know, or, or, or you following Kundalini Yoga or something. He said, that's not your tradition. Stick with your tradition. Live out of your own history and develop that. It's more authentic and it won't separate you from yourself. Mm. Um, so um, it was very much for, you know, sticking with your concrete reality and developing that to the best of your ability. When you look at what Jesus meant to Jung or how Jung looked at Jesus, he said he, he's an example of the individuating personality. Follow Jesus in that sense. Um, that uh, follow your own path, find your own myth, you know, be true to your myth as Jesus was to his. Jesus does appear in the Red Book right at the end uh, in the garden, in Philemon's garden. Um, and um, I think Jesus was uh, an important figure for Jung. Jung, you know, carried a Bible around in his pocket uh, all his life, uh, his grandson told me. and. Uh, sitting on the train and so on, he'd pull out his Bible and he'd start reading something. So he was very uh, immersed in the biblical text, the biblical world. Um, now, 
for Christians, you know, people with a Christian background, Jesus will continue to be an important figure in their private um, meditations and, and uh, religious uh, practices. But I wouldn't place him as an exceptional figure within the pantheon of figures that Jungian psychology has to consider as archetypal figures. For me personally, he, uh, he uh, transcends them, but that's my own personal feeling about it. Uh, a Hindu wouldn't feel that most likely, or a Buddhist. They might put Buddha as a super, you know, superior figure. Um, but I can live with that, and they can live with mine, and we can have dialogues uh, on that basis, I think. Uh, much of Jung's legacy seems to me to have to do with his uh, universal psychological theory that he left behind with his concepts, with the archetypes, with the collective unconscious. But, but, but could one imagine how Jung's life and psychological project could have looked differently if he would have stayed working more within the Christian tradition? Russell Becker, who was my, my mentor at uh, Yale Divinity School, said to me, it's too bad Jung was born in Switzerland. If he'd been born in America, he would have had a better uh, appreciation for the church, <laughs> that the church was so cold and so um, uninteresting to him and so without the spirit. You know, Jung said that when he took his first communion, he went home and he said, but nothing happened to me. The, the wine was kind of bitter and the bread was stale. And what is this supposed to be? It's nothing. So he wasn't really, um, uh, he couldn't participate in that church. Somebody once asked him and he wrote an essay, why I'm not a Catholic, you know, why couldn't he become a Catholic? Because he appreciated the Catholic rituals so much. He wanted to go to Rome. He fainted at the train station. He couldn't go there. It was so powerful. Um, and um, But he couldn't become a Catholic because he was a Swiss Protestant. Swiss Protestants can't become Catholics. It's impossible. Uh, they've been fighting Catholics for centuries. Um, so he was really trapped in a particular form of Christianity that he could not uh, stay in. He outgrew it very early, but he appreciated uh, elements of Christianity. If you read his Zofingia papers. Uh, he is very appreciative of the mystical elements in Christianity, of which there is nothing in Swiss Protestantism. Swiss Protestantism took the statues, the stained glass windows, they stripped the churches bare. Everything became ideas and the word and the intellectual sermons that were presented and doing the right thing and moralistic. It lost the spirit and it lost symbolism. And the young was so sensitive to that. So he couldn't really stay in his Protestant tradition. Um, other people have, like I mentioned, Morton Kelsey and uh, John Sanford. Um, John Sanford was an Episcopal priest in uh, San Diego, California, to the end of his life. Uh, he had a, a mother who was a, a healer. Uh, with a, you know, a laying on of hands and the light, a very mystical person, Agnes Sanford, famous American figure. That was his mother. He became an Episcopal priest. He became a Jungian analyst, and he combined Jungian analysis uh, as a part of his pastoral work in the church. And the books he wrote are 
uses uh, use uh, he uses Jungian psychology to interpret and uh, really make more interesting um, the uh, uh, certain Christian ideas uh, and biblical passages and so on. So he's working from inside. I wouldn't say to reform necessarily, but to add a psychological depth, symbolic element to uh, the, the tradition, which in the Protestant, at least, parts of the tradition of Christianity, it has uh, largely lost. Not so much in Lutheranism. You know, the debate between Luther and uh, Zwingli was, is Christ really present in, in the Mass or in the Communion? And Zwingli said, no, this is just a memorial service. We are remembering what happened 1,500 years ago. And Luther said, no, it's a real presence. So Luther remained kept this mystical element. And so the, the, uh, the communion in the Lutheran church has a much more, you could say, numinous quality to it than the communion service in the uh, uh, Reformed churches has. And Jung missed that. Uh, Jung was a mystic at heart. Had he grown up in a more mystical tradition, maybe as a Lutheran even, um, it would have been possible for him maybe to work within that tradition uh, and um, contribute his psychological uh, work uh, without departing from it or from the outside, so to speak, maybe. Uh, but Jung had such broad interests in all the world religions and all the cultures. And um, I think he, um, in a sense, exceeded uh, all the traditions. Um, in his thinking at least, but in his personal practice uh, and in his life, I think he stuck pretty close to his ground, to his um, origins. Well, I'm also thinking just to share with you before we end. I think that the title of the podcast will be um, Psychology and the Cross. Psychology and the Cross. Yeah. And then something with Jungian underneath, you know, but like, but I, I think it would be some, something in that vein. Uh, um, I, I knew a woman, <clears throat> uh, she was the founder of the. Um, Young Center in Houston, Texas. Her name was Ruth Thacker Fry. She was a really eccentric, kind of weird woman, but very um, charismatic and um, um, a big woman with red hair. And she knew Jung. And uh, she studied at the Jung uh, Institute in the 1950s. And at one of the celebrations for Jung, I think it was his 80th birthday or something, she attended. And she stood in a long line to shake his hand. And she was wearing a cross, a big cross on her uh, uh, necklace. And uh, Jung recognized her and he took the cross and he put his, he held it in his hand and he said, you know where the place to live is? Right in the center of the cross. <laughs> That's where the opposites come together, right in the center. 